be fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Stay with us, Fidelity. Coming at you once again with Michael Graney. This time on a question of Fratelli Tutti. Everybody's favorite encyclical, and I'm being sarcastic if you haven't figured that out. And what better person could I find than the Center of Economic and Social Justice is Michael Graney, who just did a 90,000 episode thing on socialism and the history behind that and the kingship of Christ last week, if you haven't watched that one. Michael. Thank you for doing this. It, I, full disclosure, it was his idea. <laughs> I said, full disclosure, this was Michael's idea. <laughs> yes, it was. And it's not going to be a 90,000 episode series. I think that the, pr the prior one was only 16 episodes. It was a 16. <laughs> I lost count after two. And it's this is not by any means an in-depth analysis of the encyclical. Uh I'm going to focus in on a question that puzzled me. And uh, as a Catholic, of course, in fact, every human being, when they find themselves baffled or confused about something or in need of instruction, there is a moral obligation to seek instruction and guidance from the proper authorities, which, which obviously makes sense. In fact, if you've ever gone through one of those examination of conscience uh, sheets that they mm -hmm. they used to hand out, especially in catechism when you're getting ready for your first communion or something. Of course, six-year-old kid, what the heck is he going to know about uh, what most of this stuff is? But one of the questions you ask yourself is, have I uh, sought instruction when I am in need of it? Or do have I sought guidance when something confuses me or baffles me? Because it is an obligation, just as it is an obligation of the teacher, you know, your local deacon, priest, bishop, or even pope, when people are in need of instruction to teach them mm -hmm. and to explain in ways that they can understand. Uh, thus, if you had, for instance, say you were confused about something in your local parish and you went to the priest, and instead of, you know, answering your question or even greeting you, he uh, took to his heels and ran the other way. He would be guilty of a grave sin because his job is to teach you and to the best of his ability to teach you in a way that you can understand it. And of course, that means that you are morally obligated to seek instruction, but also to question your teacher if you don't understand it. It's, there's an obligation on both the teacher's side and the student's side in this. So it's, when you're ignorant or confused or something, it is a moral obligation of every human being, not just Catholics or Christians, to seek instruction. And this is so important that the Catholic Church counts, you know, uh, numbers this among the corporal works of mercy to instruct the ignorant, 
you're, you're actually doing something virtuous when you're teaching somebody, not running away or hiding or confusing matters. And that means that a true servant leader, of which, of course, Jesus is the exemplar for all time and all places, should lead in an instructive manner, not just give orders. You notice that even though Jesus is God, when he was teaching in his earthly ministry, he didn't just give orders, basically saying, do this or that, and that's it. I'm not going to explain anything. He always taught in a way that explained it. And sometimes even gave the explanation in a way that made the point obvious rather than simply just making the point. Sort of the Socratic method, except maybe they should call it the, I almost said Jesuit method. <laughs> what would Jesus do? He would teach in a manner that people could understand. He wouldn't just give orders that confuse people. Uh, and of course, if only by the, the leader, the, the true servant leader leads both by example as well as by positive instruction and listens to requests for instruction and clarification. Now, I'm not trying to teach deacons, priests, bishops, and the Pope their jobs. I'm just stating this so that people understand where I stand on this issue. Now, what brought this up, of course, is the recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti. To me, and I say this to me, uh, I'm not saying that anyone else is confused about this, but I happen to be very confused because it's my area of expertise. Certain passages in the encyclical seem to contradict natural law. Uh, during this discussion, if I say they do contradict, please edit that and say that they seem to me to contradict natural law. This is why I'm asking for clarification and you know, instruction on this and guidance in this matter. Uh, in particular, it's the natural law, uh, the natural right with respect to private property, which is inherent in every human being if you're going by the Aristotelian Thomist framework and understanding of natural law, which is the stated framework for understanding Catholic social teaching. Uh, as I said, there are certain statements in the encyclical that appear to contradict what the Catholic Church has always taught. And this means to me that there can either be a human error, or I'm not under on the part of the teacher, or I'm not understanding the way it's said, and I need clarification. And frankly, I don't say that I'm dumber than other people, but I think I am at least as smart as the average. And if I need clarification, chances are there may be a lot of people. And judging from the uproar over this encyclical, I think that I'm right in that. So I am well within my rights as well as my moral duty to request this clarification. If I stress that over much, it's because I don't want to get attacked. <laughs> that would never happen to you, of course, would it? Nah, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nobody does. Nobody does. It's all my imagination. Fake news. Uh, now, I'm going to give what I understand as the church's teaching on private property and the natural law as the first part of this request for guidance. I won't call it a presentation because it's more of a very, very extended question and request for assistance. Now, the right to private property, 
along with life and liberty, is by nature absolute. It is inherent in every single human being. And because it's by nature, and human nature is a reflection of divine nature, human nature in its substance can be no more unchanging than the divine nature of which it's a reflection. A philosopher would say we're incomplete analogs of God. Uh, if you want to get really technical, where God is infinitely perfect and therefore unchanging and immutable, human beings are infinitely perfectable and not unchanging and absolute in their substantial nature in that part which reflects the image and likeness of God. Okay, that won't be on the test. <laughs> It was on the test in the other series. <laughs> now, however, that's the right to private property. It's called access or the generic right of dominion or the right to private property, the right to be an owner. That is by nature, it is absolute. You can't change it. Otherwise, you're saying that whoever has been de deprived of the right to be an owner is not human or is no longer human or has changed somehow. Private property, liberty, and life, the right to these rights and to these things, and the access to life, liberty, and private property cannot be changed or altered. Every single child, woman, and man in existence who has ever existed or will ever exist has this right by nature absolutely now we get to what people confuse with that right of access which is use the rights of private property or the rights of life the rights of liberty simply because you have the natural right of liberty doesn't mean you can do anything you want that's license that's not liberty Similarly, with private property, just because you can own something doesn't mean you can do anything you want. You have to consider not only your wants and needs with respect to what you own, but the needs of other individuals, other groups, and society as a whole. They have a right for you to use what you own properly. This is called the universal destination of all goods. It does not negate or nullify the generic right of dominion because that would insert a contradiction. What it means is that while you may absolutely have the right to own things and to have access to the means of acquiring and possessing things, which means to get into economics, you have the right as a human being, not for, because of any race, creed, color, religion, or economic uh, standing, you have the right of access to the means of acquiring and possessing private property, which means access to money and credit. That doesn't mean you get it automatically. You have to qualify for it. But to deny someone for no other reason than that you don't want them to have it, you have violated their right to private property. You have violated their generic right of dominion. But that does not mean that simply because you can own something, and this is where we get into the universal destination of all goods, and it is absolutely critical to keep these things separate, even though they go together by nature. You can't 
separate them in, in reality. But when you're analyzing them and considering them, the right to private property and the rights of private property are two different things. It's like God's intellect and will joined in reality. And there's no distinction between an act of the will and the act of the intellect in God, although there can be in human beings, of course. As St. Paul said, what I will, I don't do, and what I do, I don't will. I mean, <laughs> or words to that effect. But the rights of property, what you may do with what you own, are socially determined and necessarily limited simply because other people exist and you have to take them into consideration. But that does not mean in any way, shape, or form that your right to be an owner is thereby nullified. The whole politics in the Aristotelian sense, is the art of how do I realize my rights optimally and yet make certain that other people can also exercise their rights optimally so that nobody's rights are violated and everybody can act together as political animals. See, we are both individual and social by nature, which is possibly unique in creation. Aristotle called it political because only human beings, as far as we know, uh, by nature, typically associate in organized communities called the polis, hence political. I realize we get pretty deep with this and maybe getting into incredible detail, but I want to make certain that the basis for my confusion of Fratelli Tutti is, is understood because this is where I'm coming from, and it is why I'm confused by the encyclical, at least by the passages I'm concentrating on, which are in my area of expertise. There may be a lot else in there that is confusing, or it may be perfectly consistent the way Cardinal Mueller said. He says, this is not incomprehensible. Well, the fact that he felt it necessary to say that tells me that, yes, it is, because it doesn't clarify something to tell somebody, oh, it's perfectly clear when they clearly don't understand it. Now, to, to explain this, I'm gonna, this presentation, unfortunately, is gonna get into even more quotes than, the, than the, the other ones that I give. And I don't really care for quotes, but as I said many times before, these people said it so much better than I did. So why try to paraphrase, which could insert even more confusion into my already confused situation here. So this is from Heinrich Roman, his book on the natural law. Uh, Roman was a student of Father Heinrich Pesch, who he was not the founder of solidarism, he was its redeemer, in my opinion, because he took something that, as far as I know, uh, Emil Durkheim, the French uh, sociologist, developed, which was a fascist, socialist, totalitarian version of solidarism. Uh, but Heinrich Lohmann was a member of the Königswinterkreis, which sent two members to uh, Rome in 1931 to consult with Pius XI on Catholic social teaching, which is how it got incorporated and how the legend started that Pius XI didn't really write Quadragesimo Anno. It was Oswald von Nelbreuning and Gustav Gundlach. Well, they drafted the major part of it under the instruction of Pius XI. So mechanically, yes, Oswald von Nelbreuning drafted the encyclical 
on Pius XI's instructions. Authorship is such a vague concept at times. <laughs> it's like the book that we have coming out hopefully within the next couple of weeks. I drafted it, wrote the bulk of it, but if I hadn't had the assistance of Dawn Brohan, uh, she acted as my editor and pointed out certain passages that needed clarification, rewrote some of them. So it's perfectly legitimate to call her a co-author of the book, even though the bulk of the project was me. So I'm the principal author. So I'll take, you know, the shining stars and the credit and all the blame, of course. No, no, no. Don will take all the blame. I'll give that to her. I was she, gonna say, come on, Matt, you, you give the blame to the co. <laughs> of course. <laughs> anyway, this is what Heinrich Roman, how he explained private property, both as it in its natural right aspect and its derived applied aspect socially determined. It says, thou shalt not steal, which is of course universal throughout the, the world among every human being. It's wrong to steal. Now, how you define theft may differ. Some people say, well, what I'm doing isn't theft. But do you agree that theft is wrong? Oh, yes. I mean, even though the communists assert that, they say theft is wrong because surplus value is being stolen from the workers and from the consumers. So you agree theft is wrong. What they differ on is the definition of private property. But here's how I lived with a, I lived with a couple guys that were arguing, you know, those you've probably heard of those people that say that that tree doesn't exist or we made up the floor, things like that. There's no right or wrongs. So I said, Oh yeah, give me a wallet. Give yeah. me a credit card. All yeah. of a sudden they find a moral code. <laughs> yeah. Well that's like uh Samuel Johnson, you know, Dr. Johnson. Uh, he was arguing with Boswell. Boswell was being a devil's advocate. He didn't believe this, but he was pointing out that there are some people who said that all this stuff exists only in our minds. We made it up. It's all our own creation. And Johnson, being a rather irascible sort of fellow at times, when he wasn't being extremely clever and irascible, he said, I can refute that easily. I refute it thus. And he kicked a rock by the side of the road as hard as he could. And of course, limped for the rest of the day. He was <laughs> a lot of people don't read uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson, but it's full of that stuff. <laughs> uh, anyway, to get back to Heinrich Roman, uh, thou shalt not steal presupposes the institution of private property as pertaining to natural law. Since the natural law lays down general norms only, in other words, we only know that private property is natural, not how it's natural. It is the function of the positive law to undertake the concrete detailed regulations of real and personal property and to prescribe the formalities for conveyance of ownership translated into English. I mean, Roman was was probably one of Germany's leading jurists till the Nazis got rid of him. And obviously, after reading his book on the natural law, you can see why they did, because they wanted the state to be in charge. And he was saying, no, the human person is in charge under the sovereignty of God. What Roman was saying was that the right to be an owner comes from nature, that is, comes from God. You can't change it. You can't take it away. You can't nullify it. But the rights of private property must be determined by society and by the wants and needs 
of both the individual, other individuals, groups, and the common good as a whole. But never may you define the exercise of private property use in a way that nullifies the right to be an owner, which is access. And I stress this again and again, because when we get to the, the specific analysis of the questionable passages to me in Fratelli Tutti, this is going to pop up. Because as far as I can tell, there is massive confusion, at least on my part, between the distinction of the right to property and the rights of property. Now, this is rather, uh, ironic, simply because Catholic social teaching began as a specialized field within the magisterium of the church in direct response to the rise of the new things. This was the whole point of that series on socialism we did. Uh, and the new things are, of course, socialism, modernism, and esotericism, or if you prefer, the new age, to be very generic. There are new agers who would say, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, the new age is a specific part of esotericism. Well, with all uh, with due apologies, I'm using it as, uh, as a label for all of esotericism. We can argue that out some other time. Uh, and this happened in the early 19th century, particularly with the publication of Henri de Saint-Simon's book, The New Christianity in 1825, which was socialism. The new Christianity, neo-Catholicism, the democratic religion, these were always, these were original labels for socialism. And unfortunately, what happened was a lot of people started thinking that it was authentic Christian doctrine, which of course it wasn't. And the new things, as we saw in the other series, were why Pope Gregory XVI sponsored the Thomas revival, you know, the revival of the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. And, of course, the work of Monsignor Luigi Aloysius Taparelli, I'm going to mispronounce it, De Asilio, who was actually a Jesuit who knew what he was talking about. He was actually the first one to use the term social justice in the Catholic sense. But we went into that in great detail in the other series, so I won't cover it again. But what happened was that in 1832, Gregory XVI issued the first social encyclical, Mirare Vos, on liberalism and religious indifferentism. And again, I'll quote, because this goes straight to the heart of the matter and why I am confused about Fratelli Tutti. The discipline sanctioned by the church must never be rejected or be branded as contrary to certain principles of natural law. This is from section nine of Mirare Vos. It must never be called crippled or imperfect or subject to civil authority. In this discipline, the administration of sacred rights, R-I-T-E-S, uh, standards of morality and the reckoning of the rights of the church and her ministers are embraced. So he was you know, including religious society as well as civil society among that which is covered by natural law. We have the right of free association, and that means the right to religious liberty. Now, even Pius IX, who is considered, you know, the reactionary monster, he was actually a genuine liberal of the American type, not the French type. He emphasized that the doctrine of, you know, the non solus doctrine, no salvation outside the church, 
doesn't mean that just because you're not a Catholic, you are automatically damned. He said, God in his infinite mercy, if someone doesn't understand the church, what the church teaches, or has never even heard of the church, we don't know that they're automatically damned. We cannot presume on God's mercy, but then we also can't presume on God's judgment either. We're not God. Don't be making judgments just because you think someone's going to hell. Frankly, if you think someone's going to hell, it may be a good indication that you're on your way. Although, of course, the church is not going to make any definitive statement on that. The church will only declare that someone is in heaven, not that they're in hell. Most people don't realize we the church has never made a doctrinal statement that even Judas Iscariot is in hell. Between the time he jumped off, whatever he jumped off to hang himself, and the time where he hanged himself, he may have repented. We don't know. So the church does not make any doctrinal statement that there is anybody in hell or that anybody is damned. Frankly, I think I have a whole list of people who I think are there, but uh, I could be wrong. And in my better moments, I hope I am. <laughs> uh, usually people have offended me. Yeah. Even if they're not there dead yet, you know, I've already put them there. And then, of course, I repent and say I shouldn't have done that. But uh, anyway... To get back to our subject, I don't want to confuse people more because just because I'm confused. Um, subsequent social encyclicals either explicitly stated or implied that Catholic social teaching is based on natural law and that this is the natural law as understood in Aristilian Thomist thought. This is explicitly stated in Attorney Patris and Studiorum Ducem. Uh, Attorney Patris was by Leo XIII, Studiorum Ducem was by Pius XI. Both specified Aristotelian Thomist philosophy and thus that particular understanding of natural law as the framework for understanding Catholic social teaching. Now, you may believe that, for instance, Augustinianism is better for understanding Catholic social teaching and build your interpretation on that. You may even be right. But that's not what the church says, and that's not how to understand what the church teaches. You must do it within that specific framework. Otherwise, you're trying to understand, for example, analytic geometry in terms of arithmetic or biology in terms of chemistry. Yeah, there's some relation. But if you really want to understand algebra, don't try to apply the principles of biology to it. It's not the right system. To understand Catholic social teaching and thus the right to private property and the rights of private property, you have to do it from the Aristotelian Thomas perspective and understanding of natural law. Now, why is this important? Well, this is where we get into what I learned in high school finally. I knew that this would come in handy, and it did. Decades later, all these people that say, Wow, I survived another day without algebra. I thought you probably used it without knowing it. Uh, this is world literature that I learned my senior year. Before Aristotle, Greek philosophy made a distinction between the law of nature given by the gods, uh, physis, or some, I, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, I can't pronounce Greek letters. That's all there is to it. I, I have enough trouble with the Latin alphabet. 
and human positive law and custom, uh, nomos, I think. Uh, as I said, those during the Middle Ages, when these scribes would come across a passage in Greek, in Greek letters, and they'd try to copy it out accurately, but to warn the reader that they may have made a mistake, they would put a little scribe's gloss, you know, a little commentary over to the side. Grecames non potes legi. This is Greek, it cannot be read, which is where we get the expression, it's all Greek to me. That will be on the test. Totally trivial, you don't need to know it. Uh, anyway, before Aristotle or Socrates and Plato, the idea was that divine law, the law of nature, and human law, which was also considered the law of nature, could be different. And substantially different from place to place, depending on what the needs of the human beings were in that particular area. And this permitted human positive law, as we would think of it today, to contradict divine law. And now this is where my high school education pays off. We took Antigone, you know, Sophocles, was it Sophocles or Euripides? One of those Greek tragedians. And the tragedy, of course, involves the fact that Antigone was obeying what she construed as the law of the gods, that Polynices should be buried. Uh, I hope you're taking notes. And Creon, the king, was obeying his law, which said rebels must be punished, even unto death. So Polynices would not be buried in accordance with the law of the gods. Because his law, which he considered just as legitimate as the, the law of the gods, said no. The needs of the state say we must punish rebels to punish rebellion. So that both Creon and Antigone were convinced that they were doing the right thing, and that was the heart of the whole tragedy of Antigone. Only in a pre-Aristotelian context could you have that you know, particular tragedy, because once you recognize, as Aristotle did, that the law of nature or of the gods, uh, that human positive law is not is not on the same level, but derived from it. So that from our perspective, Antigone was right and Creon was wrong because his human positive law, he tried to make it so that it trumped divine law. But to the author, and <laughs> I'm gonna, all you Greek scholars and literature are going to write in saying, you mean you don't know that Antigone was written? I think it was Sophocles? Anyway, whoever it was, uh, he made the tragedy the fact that human law and divine law could be in conflict legitimately so that there was no way out of that situation. See, this is why it's called a Greek tragedy. You can't get out of it. There's no way. There, there's no hope. Whereas from an Aristotelian perspective or a Christian perspective, of course there's a way out. You obey divine law, not human law. But of course, you have to show that the human law is contrary to divine law. Then you're in the right. But the tragedy of Antigone was that they were both right. That was your, that was your Greek lesson for the day. Now, Sophocles, Plato, and Aristotle rejected the idea that the law of nature and the human positive law could or should legitimately contradict one another thus avoiding the tragedies like Antigone. 
they posited a natural justice or a natural right that is absolutely unchanging. And I think uh, that's pronounced dikainon physicon or something like that in Latin, use naturale. Uh, I'm better at uh, Latin. Although, don't pull this so-called fake classical Latin or Germanic Latin or Polish Latin or any other kind of Latin. It's church Latin. That has the unbroken tradition of how to, how to pronounce these words, we hope. Uh, and to which human positive law must conform to this natural justice in order to be legitimate. Now, this is where Aquinas came in. Now, if you look at the, the secular sources, they'll say that Aquinas contradicted Aristotle on this or contradicted him on some other things. No, Aquinas did not. What Aquinas did, excuse me, was expand on and correct Aristotle. Aristotle wasn't perfect. Uh, although you got to sit back and say, you know, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, for all their mistakes, were brilliant. And even Aristotle's mistakes make sense. His natural slave argument, although we, we practically spit on it today, that how could anybody think like that? It made perfect sense to him and is supremely logical. It just happens to be wrong. So Aquinas corrected it. He also corrected slightly Aristotle's concept of natural justice and refined on it so that to Aquinas, he said, the light of reason is placed by nature in every man to guide him in his acts. See, because to Aristotle, every human being was different, and even some things that appeared to be human were not human, natural slaves, because they lacked the capacity for virtue. Well, Aquinas corrected that by saying every single human being has the analogously complete capacity to become virtuous or vicious. That's why we are infinitely perfectable, not perfect. And this is why every single human being has the same natural rights to life, liberty, and private property. And of course, what Jefferson called the pursuit of happiness, which means, in Aristotelian Thomas terms, the right to exercise your rights, to become virtuous. It doesn't mean to sit back and eat pork rinds, drink beer, and watch TV. The way I, I actually saw someone reject Jefferson's words on the pursuit of happiness on the grounds that, well, if all you want to do to be happy was sit there and eat snacks and watch TV and drink beer. So Jefferson was wrong. I thought, no, that's not what it meant. You have to look at these things in a rational way, which Jefferson was attempting to do. Uh, anyway, so what Aquinas said was that the light of reason is placed by nature in every man to guide him in his acts. And of course, by man, he means all human beings and analogously complete, not different in every person. God created human nature and thus the general code of human behavior discerned by reason to be in conformity with human nature also conforms to God's will. In other words, uh, our rights and what and our concepts of virtue must conform to what little we know of God because we are created in God's image and likeness and therefore that which is good conforms to, to God because God is virtue. It's not that God is virtuous. He is 
as uh, St. John the Evangelist said, God is love, not God has love. Because he is infinitely perfect, he incorporates as part of his very nature everything that is virtuous, except for hope. God does not have either faith or hope. If you stop to think about it, that makes sense. How can God have faith in himself when he when faith applies to that which is not manifestly true. Well, if God is not manifestly true to himself, then God doesn't exist. And of course, how can you hope for something when you are everything? There's nothing to hope for. As someone pointed out once to me, uh, there is no faith or hope in heaven. You don't need faith because it's right there. You don't need hope because what have you got to hope for when you've got heaven? Uh, but to return to Aquinas, because we have this built into us, this you know, analogously complete capacity to become virtuous, and thus the whole spectrum of natural rights, life, liberty, and private property, it says, therefore, human beings use reason to lead their lives. Law is reason, lex ratio, not an interpretation of God's will contrary to reason, which is lex voluntas. Law is reason, not law is will. This is natural law. Natural law is an expression in human terms of God's nature, hence natural law, self-realized in his intellect, therefore discernible by reason. And this has been infallibly declared by the Catholic Church as part of the magisterium in the First Vatican Council and repeated in the oath against modernism, and in humani generis, and implied constantly. Knowledge of God's existence, and of the natural law written in the hearts of all men, meaning every single human being, may be discerned by the force and light of human reason alone. Now that doesn't tell us anything else. We don't know that God is a, is a triune, three persons in one God, by reason. That's faith. We don't know that Jesus came to earth and carried out his earthly ministry and redeemed mankind by his sacrifice on the cross. That's faith. But we can know that there is a God and that the natural law is an aspect of him that we can discern in our own nature. Therefore, we can discern God that, that God exists and the natural law by human reason. Not, or as St. Thomas Aquinas said when he was debating the Averroists, he says, not by documents of faith, but by reasons and statements of the philosophers themselves. Uh, Chesterton used that to good effect in his little book on St. Thomas Aquinas, The Dumb Ox, which a lot of people seem to ignore, especially Chestertonians, but that's another issue. Uh, now, that means that it's not the primacy of the will. It's not what someone declares by faith to be true, but the primacy of the intellect. If you declare something by faith that you can see contradicts reason, there's a problem somewhere. Either your reason is off or your faith is off. And this is why, as I keep repeating in this presentation, I have a, I'm confused by Fratelli Tutti, because what is declared by faith seems to contradict that which is declared by reason or discerned by reason. Uh, so the, the primacy of the intellect, and this is God's unchanging and unchangeable nature, 
self-realized in his intellect as the basis of natural law. And this, this is affirmed in the first question of the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's affirmed by the first Vatican Council, as I said, Canon 2.1, or was it 2.4? Anyway, it was affirmed. <laughs> and it was defined the same way two key doctrines were defined in the first Vatican Council, the primacy of the intellect and the infallibility of the teaching office of the Roman pontiff, both to counter the new things of socialism, modernism, and the new age, or esotericism. And it is also affirmed in the oath against modernism, as I said, and in Humani Generis, the 1950 encyclical. Now, the natural law therefore manifests in human beings as natural rights, chiefly, as I said, life, liberty, private property, and the pursuit of happiness, which doesn't mean necessarily contentment, but virtue. And this is in the Aristotelian sense, that is, the right of access to the opportunity and means to become virtuous. All natural rights are built into human nature by God and are therefore inalienable, absolute, uh, inherent, however you want to put it. God put them there. People can't take them out. They're there. And the same is with the, you know, and that's with, with, with the cardinal virtues, the temporal virtues, you know, prudence, fortitude, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and of course, above all, justice, whereas the capacity for the, uh, the supernatural virtues are faith, hope, and charity are infused into every human being by divine gift. They're not there by nature, but no human being can take them out either because God gives them as a free gift to every single human being. Just remember, they, peanut butter, jelly, French toast. You'll get it. <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> of course, I'm not going to put peanut butter and jelly on my French toast. <laughs> I hope I don't think of that the rest of this presentation. I have enough things that, that are throwing me off. At least the sun stopped coming in the window directly on me. So now, the each the, the natural rights are inherent and absolute in every human being. But remember, the rights of life, liberty, and private property are socially determined and necessarily limited. You can't do whatever you want. But the these while they are necessarily socially determined and limited in their exercise, the rights of something within the common good cannot be defined in any way that effectively nullifies the underlying natural right to. In other words, you cannot define, say, the exercise of private property in any way that nullifies the right to be an owner on the part of any human being whatsoever. You can't do it. It's illegitimate. It contradicts reason. It contradicts the definition of natural right itself. There's no such thing as a primary natural right or a secondary natural right. It's a natural right. This is in conformity with the first principle of reason. That which is true is as true and is true in the same way as everything else that is true. If something is a natural right, it's a natural right. It's not, oh, it's a natural right except for when it's not a natural right. 
you can't do that. It's illegitimate. And the fact that there are some passages in Fratelli Tutti that seem to imply that this can be the case, as I said, confuses me a great deal. That is the whole reason for my ranting right now. Now, changing the definition of a natural law or of a natural right or defining the exercise of a right, of a natural right, in any way that nullifies those rights violates the first principle of reason, as I said. And this is both the, the law and principle of non-contradiction or contradiction. Uh, that which is uh, nothing can both be and not be at the same time under the same conditions and the principle of identity. In other words, for instance, the, 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 the pro-abortionists or the pro-choicers will say, that's not a human being yet. Well, no, every human being, whether potential or actual, is as human and is human in the same way as everything else that is human. Thus, any natural right is as fully a natural right and is a natural right in the same way as every other natural right. This is the principle of identity. That which is true is as true and is true in the same way as everything else that is true. You can't say something's partly true. You're not a little bit dead or just a little bit pregnant. You're, you either are or you're not. Now, the exercise of natural rights within the common good builds habits of doing good. You know, virtue, humanness, that's what virtue means. Becoming virtue means becoming more fully human. You're fully human, but you become more fully human by becoming virtuous. By becoming vicious or building habits of vice, you're becoming less fully human. You're not becoming less human. You're becoming less fully human. It's a distinction that a lot of people fail to make. And exercising natural rights, especially life, liberty, and private property, the most immediate one, is the normal way of becoming more fully human or virtuous. Now, the reason I keep insisting on this is because, as I said, there are passages in the encyclical that confuse me in light of this. Now, preventing the exercise of natural rights or changing the definition of an inalienable right prevents people from becoming more fully human. In other words, why are we here on earth to become more fully human and prepare us for our final end? If someone prevents the exercise of natural rights, they're preventing you from becoming more fully human and from fitting yourself for your true end, which of course to a Catholic is to be with God in heaven. If you violate someone's rights of life in such a way as to nullify the right to life or your rights of liberty in a way that nullifies your right to liberty and of course, the main point that I'm addressing here, if someone changes or violates your rights of property in a way that nullifies the right to property, what they're saying is, we don't want you to go to heaven. But what's the whole job of the church but to help get people to heaven? At least as ignorant people like me who are confused about these things would, would say that. I don't know anyone who wouldn't. You're free to disagree with me. Uh, just if, if you do, however, just bleep it out so nobody hears you. Uh, now, the problem is the new things, and this is why I keep going back to them, 
the new things of socialism, modernism, and esotericism shifted the basis of the natural law. They went from the intellect, which is where Aristotle and Aquinas put it, and the church recognizes, they shifted the basis of the natural law from the intellect, reason, to the will, that is, to faith, fideism. And this redefined natural law as whatever conforms to the will of the majority, regardless of the consistency with reason and thus with nature. And as Heinrich Roman pointed out, what this means ultimately is might makes right. If you can convince enough people or beat up enough people to go along with what you want, that makes it right, regardless of the fact that it contradicts something. So even though, for example, Fratelli Tutti says something about private property that seems to contradict reason to me and thereby confuses me, if the response I get is, well, that's what the Pope said, go with it, or you're kicked out of the church, or you're a bad Christian, or you're a traitor to Christ or something, that's not an answer. All you're doing is asserting that might makes right. You haven't explained anything to me. I'm not asking for a judgment. I'm asking for an explanation. Now, with might makes right, basically, if something's popular or you can get enough people to go along with it, that makes it right, which, of course, contradicts what Fulton Sheen liked to say, and I think he was quoting somebody else, probably was. He seemed to do that a lot and forgot to credit it, but I, I forgive him. Uh, do you know where he got his uh, life is worth living bit? He got that from William Hurl Malick, who wrote a book back in the early 19th century countering positivism by saying, is life worth living? And, of course, answering in the affirmative. But Fulton Sheen was a student of Monsignor Ronald Knox, and Monsignor Ronald Knox greatly admired William Hurl Malick, even though he was not a Catholic, he was very high church Anglican. And so obviously Fulton Sheen got his life is worth living from William Hurl Malick's is life worth living. I could go on and on about Fulton Sheen, but I won't, I'll, I'll spare you. Uh, anyway, we have, the, we have a whole video on Fulton Sheen. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, now, the whole idea that it was faith, not reason, that determines natural law and God's will, uh, that was William of Ockham, uh, who distorted the thought of uh, Dun Scot John Duns Scotus and put every, he rejected the intellect almost completely. You must believe everything only on faith alone. And of course, centuries later, Huguet Felicité Robert de Lamennais said the same thing with his theory of certitude. We must accept reason on faith, even if it contradicts reason. Well, no, we can't do that. And that's, of course, why de Lamennais, of whom we have a few videos, uh, was the, the founder of basically Catholic socialism uh, and of liberal Catholicism. And of course, we see this in the so-called father of natural law, Hugo Grotius. Now, what I'm about to say is a quote from his book on law. And, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> it is clearly in a line derived from not Aquinas, but from Duns Scotus by way of distorted Occamism, William of Occam. 
What we have been saying would have a degree of validity, even if we should concede that which cannot be conceded without the utmost wickedness. Okay, right there, you've got a contradiction. How can someone who is talking about goodness and right concede something that admits wickedness? Well, that's a contradiction right there. But he continues, that there is no God or that the affairs of men are of no concern to him. That's in the De Iore Belli Acpacis Libre Tres, in the prologue of book two. Hugo Grotius, in his idea of natural law based on will, which means based on somebody's expression or understanding of God's will found in the Bible or some other book that you regard as holy, you have the Bible, you don't need God. Well, the Bible is not the sole rule of faith, and it's not the original rule of faith. The church gave us the Bible, and God gave us the church. You can't say, oh, we have the Bible, we don't need God, which is the very thing that Hugo Grotius said was the basis of natural law. We have God's a statement of God's will. We don't need God. Well, you can't say that. God is a necessary being. Yes, we need God. God doesn't need us. I mean, you're talking a, a contradiction that is cosmic, and yet people have accepted this as the basis of natural law for several hundred years. Now, this is getting us closer now. Socialism, the abolition of private property, was first promoted as the democratic religion, and it can best be summarized as the abolition of private property, as well as traditional forms of the state, marriage and family, and organized religion, especially the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has, from the very beginning, been the special target of the socialists, the modernists, and the New Agers. And I just screwed up. Okay, no, I didn't. <laughs> I thought I lost my place in my notes. Turn out I had a blank page where one wasn't supposed to be. Ah, now, Catholic social teaching came into being to counter the new things, to counter socialism, modernism, and the new age. And as I said, and I'm going to keep repeating, passages in Fratelli Tutti seem to accept this new Christianity, the socialist assumptions, the modernist assumptions, which I find very confusing especially in light of the fact that Catholic social teaching came into being specifically to refute these things and to counter them. The First Vatican Council defined the primacy of the intellect and papal infallibility to counter the new things. Chesterton, to drag him kicking and screaming in, although he was so big, I don't know how I could drag him anywhere. Uh, as he said, someone he was so big that during the First World War, some woman came up to him and said, how come you're not out at the front? And he said, uh, Madam, if you will come around, you will see I am indeed out at the front. <laughs> they couldn't even get him into a cab once. He, they had to ranhandle him in. That's how big he was. I'm skinny compared to him. Anyway, he proposed distributism, which was widely distributed private property to counter the new things. This was his understanding of Raymond Novarum and Catholic social teaching which he accepted even as an Anglican. Uh, Fulton Sheen devoted his entire career to countering the new things. His first two books were an explicit uh, refutation of them. 
uh, if you read, read them carefully, and this probably explains, in my opinion, why a socialist, modernist, and new ager like Monsignor John A. Ryan went after Fulton Sheen and virtually destroyed his academic career. He was saying things, Sheen was saying things that Ryan didn't want people to hear. So he silenced him as best he could and almost succeeded. Now, with respect, getting back to orthodoxy, the social doctrine of Pius XI, John Paul II's personalism, all of Catholic social teaching, in fact, is based on the dignity of the human person, not the collective. And this is within the framework of Aristotelian Thomist understanding of natural law and the right, natural rights of life, liberty, and private property as inherent, absolute, and inalienable as a fundamental assumption of the thought itself. You can't get away from it. Now, as I said, this means that you can't confuse access, the generic right of dominion, and use, the universal destination of all goods, nor can generic right of dominion access contradict use, the universal destination of all goods, any more than the universal destination of all goods can contradict the generic right of dominion. The whole art of politics is finding out how do we get the, both of these things in the optimal fashion without contra one contradicting the other. In other words, the right to be an owner cannot contradict the rights of ownership of anybody any more than the rights of ownership can contradict the, the right to be an owner of anybody. And the generic right of dominion, of course, is the right to be an owner that is built into human nature itself and thus is absolute in every child, woman, and man. The generic right of dominion, on the other hand, excuse me, the generic right of dominion is the right to private property and is recognized as a fundamental human right in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's paragraph 17.1, if you want to know. And I believe that Fratelli Tutti actually alludes to the UN Declaration, but it contradicts it then, or excuse me, it appears to contradict it. This is why I'm asking for clarification. Now, the universal destination of all goods. This is how the rights of ownership are to be exercised. And these rights are necessarily limited and socially determined. As I've said repeatedly now, you can't do whatever you want just because you're alive. You can't infringe upon anybody's else's life or liberty simply because you have the right to liberty or to be free and to freely associate, nor can you do anything you want with what you own. You have to keep the rights of others in mind and of course the good of society as a whole. But those rights may not violate your right to be an owner or to be alive or to be free in the first place. The whole argument, if you've ever heard of a book called Cotton is King from 1855, it tried to make the argument that because the economic viability or survival of the United States and the British Empire depended upon the slave cultivation of cotton, that slaves, that black slaves had to be in slavery. I'm, I'm not saying that right, but it was basically an economic justification for slavery saying that economic needs of the many 
overrode the liberty of the few. No, it did not. Nation of their right to be free. Now, the universal destination of all goods, therefore, the rights of private property is that private property must not be exercised in any way that causes harm to the owner, other individuals or group, or to the common good as a whole, but without prejudice to the underlying right to be an owner. And then, as I said, this is where Fratelli Tutti seems to cause confusion. Well, no, no, it does cause confusion by seeming to violate these principles. Now, this is taken directly from Leo XIII, uh, Rerum Novaro. Private ownership, as we have seen, is the natural right of man. And to exercise that right, especially as members of society, is not only lawful, but absolutely necessary. He just used the word absolute and necessary with respect to private property, private ownership, the right to be an owner. But then he says, and this is in paragraph 22, if you, if you want to look it up. But if the question be asked, how must one's possessions be used? You see, he's drawing a clear distinction between access, the right to be an owner, and use, the rights of ownership. How must one's possessions be used? The church replies without hesitation. Man should not consider his material possessions as his own, but as common to all, so as to share them without hesitation when others are in need. Now, read that passage carefully, because first he says the right to be an owner is absolute. But when it comes to exercising it, you must take other people and society as a whole into consideration and act as if your exercise is not absolute, not your right to be an owner, but the exercise. You, you may have to think about that for a moment because, for example, my associate, Dr. Norman Kurland, said he really didn't understand that until law school when they made a clear distinction as to what is property. Property is not the thing owned. Property is the right to be an owner and the bundle of rights that define exercise. He said until, he never realized that until he went to law school. And apparently there are a lot of lawyers even today who don't understand that. He went to law school in the, in the 50s. So now Leo XIII continued explaining this concept. No one is commanded to distribute to others that which is required for his own needs and those of his household, nor even to give away what is reasonably required to keep up becomingly his condition in life. In other words, just because you have something doesn't mean you have to give it away. Uh, we went into this in an earlier video when I explained that when the rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to attain eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. Now, right there, he was asked a question and Jesus answered it. Then the rich young man asked another question. He said, I have done this from my youth. I have you know, kept the commandments. What more can I do? And this is when Jesus gave him a counsel of perfection, not the ordinary way of doing things. If what Jesus then proceeded to say was the ordinary, ordinary way of doing things, he lied to the young man when the young man asked him, what must I do to attain eternal life? Jesus then said, 
in response to what more can I do? Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. So you see, the count, it's called a council of perfection. It is not the ordinary way of doing things. You can be saved and attain eternal life just by doing what normal people do without giving away everything you own. Not that we would stop you from selling all that you have and giving it to the poor if you want to be perfect. But you're not, no one is commanded to do that. Now, but, and Leo, this is where Leo the 13th picks up, says, but when what necessity demands has been supplied and one's standing fairly taken thought for, it becomes a duty to give to the indigent out of what remains over. In other words, if you have what is called a superabundance, you know, you're not going to use it. There's no conceivable use you have for it. That belongs to the poor. Give it to them. You don't need it to maintain your station or even your reasonable comfort. Give it away. Uh, it is a duty not of justice. In other words, the law can't command you to do this. No one can command you to do this except morally. And he says, save in extreme cases. Okay, suppose you've got a famine or a plague or something, and people are in dire need. Well, then duly constituted authority can come in and say, hey, you have more than you need to keep you alive. These people have nothing. We will take some of it for the common good and distribute it to keep these people alive because it's an emergency. But we recognize this is not the ordinary way of doing things. Ordinarily, it's only if you have a superabundance are you required to give it away. And that's a moral duty, not a legal duty. And so it says, it is a duty not of justice, save in extreme cases, but of Christian charity, a duty not enforced by human law. The problem with the socialists is that they want to take a duty not enforced by human law and turn it into a mandate that is enforced by human law. The state becomes God. You owe the state a moral duty, not God. If someone is not being charitable with his vast wealth and you think that he should be, you can't force the state to take away his wealth, except in extreme cases. But he will answer to God for it, not to you. There's a great line in uh, A Man for All Seasons where the Roper character uh, says to Thomas More when uh, Richard Rich goes out, he says, arrest that man. And Thomas More says, why? He hasn't broken any law. And Roper says, because he's a bad man. And all More's relatives say, yes, arrest him. He's a bad man. He's going to do harm to you, which, of course, he does end up doing by perjuring himself and getting more executed. But Moore points out, he says, if he's break, Moore, Roper says he's broken, Moore says he hasn't broken any law. And Roper says, yes, he has God's law. And Moore says, then God will take care of it. And then they get into a, a, a discussion about man's law versus God's law. Man enforces man's law, not God's law. The socialists think they can enforce God's law because they've turned man, collective man into God. Whether they admit it or not, that's what they've done. This was Fulton Sheen's whole point in his first book, God and Intelligence in Modern Philosophy in Light of the Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Snappy title that we know today by God and Intelligence, 1925. 
intro by G.K. Chesterton. Okay. Don't just stop at the intro, though, even though it's the most difficult book Sheen ever wrote, to understand, that is. Now, and Sheen, in fact, also weighed in on this. He said, and this was in uh, Freedom Under God, which came out in 1940 or 41, one of Sheen's forgotten works because people don't like to be reminded of this. He said, because the ownership of external things is the sign of freedom, the church has made the wide distribution of private property the cornerstone of her social program. Personally, you know, a couple of years ago, I think we, 2013, uh, CESJ republished in a just third way edition Fulton Sheen's Freedom Under God. We found out it was in the public domain. So we figured, well, why not? It's a great book that everyone has ignored. Unfortunately, even though it's one of our best-selling books, it has not really sold that many copies, I think because what's in it makes people nervous. Simply because Fulton Sheen keeps pointing out what real freedom is and why private property is important and why the socialists and the communists and the fascists and the Nazis are wrong. No, socialism can't be Christian. As Pius XI pointed out more than once, and as virtually every pope since Gregory XVI has pointed out. Catholic social teaching is not a euphemism for socialism. And this is why, as I keep saying, Fratelli Tutti confuses me because it sounds as if it's promoting socialism. And I need clarification on this. I am confused. We're all and, confused. Pardon? <laughs> We're all confused. <laughs> well, it's no shame to admit it. In fact, it's actually a moral duty to confess that you are confused and to request instruction and guidance, which is what I'm doing, because there are confusing passages in Fratelli Tutti, possibly more than I'm aware of, since my area of expertise is in natural law and private property and that sort of thing. So there are probably some other equivocal passages that could use clarification. I, excuse me, I even went so far in a blog of mine not too long ago to say, you know, Pope Francis may want to consider actually withdrawing this encyclical and reissuing it after clarification. Um, a friend of mine who used to work at the Vatican said that it, it it's just an example of everything-ism. There's everything under the sun in this encyclical, so much that just the sheer volume is confusing. The thing is 50,000 words long in the English translation. That's a bit long for an, a circular letter, which is what encyclical means. I mean, even Henry George's open letter back in 1891, where he was instructing the Pope that he, a non-Catholic, knew Catholic social teaching better than Leo XIII did, was only 30,000 words, which it was twice the length of Rerum Novarum at 15,000 words. Sheer volume of words can counteract any good that the encyclical is doing. It may be too long an encyclical. Now, and withdrawing a document is not unheard of. Uh, I don't recall whether it was the 15th or 16th century, but one of the popes sponsored a new translation of the Bible, you know, of the Vulgate, and was unhappy with the speed at which it was being carried out. So he did his own work, issued it, and it had to be withdrawn because it had so many mistakes in it. So 
it's not unheard of. And it would be an example of great humility to admit a mistake. I've made some mistakes and once in a great while I can even admit it. Uh, you didn't hear that. Can you, can you bleep that part out? <laughs> Let's see. Anyway, starting with the passages that confuse me here. And then as I said, we're going really overboard with the quotes and in this one. It says, this is paragraph 119. In the first Christian centuries, a number of thinkers developed a universal vision in their reflections on the common destination of created goods. That's the universal destination of all goods, which we just went into at some length. This led them to realize that if one person lacks what is necessary to live with dignity, it is because another person is detaining it. That statement, as it stands, is not true. There may be many reasons why someone lacks the necessities of life. They may not exist. What if no one has anything? How can you say then that because so-and-so has nothing, that it must be because someone's withholding it from them? This statement presumes that the universal destination of all goods, or as he put it, the common destination of created goods, refers to distribution and access. It does not. That's the generic right of dominion. It is not the universal destination of all goods, which pertains to how are we to use things, not how are we to get things, if that makes sense. So this is, the whole thing seems to me to be Keynesian in its approach because Keynes completely dismissed production. He said, don't worry about production. That's not a problem. Well, what if something is not produced? The classical economics of Adam Smith assumed as a given that you had to start with production. And that as his principle or chief law of economics, consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production, which the corollary of course is, how can you consume something that doesn't exist? Therefore, production must precede consumption. And, but this statement, in paragraph 119 seems to assume that, oh, don't worry about production. If someone doesn't have something, it's not because it's not produced, it's because someone else is being greedy. Well, you don't know that. You can't say that. And you can't say that the, the number of thinkers developed this universal vision because they weren't that dumb to say something. This is a very confusing passage. It presumes that you don't have to worry about production. Well, frankly, anybody who's anybody knows that you do have to worry about production because if you don't produce it, you can't consume it. Adam Smith's economics is built on that principle. Say's law of markets from Jean-Baptiste Say assumes that as a given. Say's law of markets is that production equals income, therefore supply generates its own demand and demand its own supply. That's extremely oversimplified. What it means is that there's only one way that you can get something ordinarily, absent charity or theft or whatever. And that is to produce it. If you wanna consume, you must produce. You must produce something either for your own consumption directly, or you must produce something to trade to somebody else for what they have produced that you wanna consume. Therefore, production equals income, supply generates its own demand and demand its own supply and 
Consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. But the underlying assumption is that first produce it, then consume it. Don't just say, oh, well, if somebody needs something, give it to him. Well, do you have it to give it to him in the first place? Okay, that's the confusing part about that paragraph. Now we get to paragraph 120, where he says, once more, I would like to echo a statement of St. John Paul II, whose forcefulness has perhaps been insufficiently recognized. Quote, God gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members without excluding or favoring anyone. Okay, right there, John Paul II was referring to use, not access. That is not a statement of common ownership. It is a statement of common access to and the right to be an owner without saying that you automatically get a chunk of the, the earth's created goods or even a chunk of the earth just because you exist. No, what you have is a right to take advantage of that, not to a right to the end result. Or to put it very crudely and misleadingly, every single human being has equality of opportunity and access to the means, not to the results. Now, if you're unfortunate or there's something wrong with you or you've tried and failed, then yes, you have a moral uh, right to charity or redistribution to keep you alive. But you, if you aren't willing to work or aren't willing to do something to make some effort to be productive in some way, shape or form, either through your labor or your capital, that does not automatically say that you get something. Suppose you're able-bodied, there's work available, and you say, I'm not going to work, but you owe me. Going by the interpretation of what seems to be the case in Fratelli Tutti, regardless of what your circumstances are, you have a right to receive something. No, you don't. Uh, but uh, Pope Francis continues. He said, for my part, I would observe that, quote, the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute or inviolable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property. Now, taken within the context of the universal destination of all goods as we have discussed it here, that does not nullify the right to be an owner. What that does is address use, not access. But he is clearly, at least to me, and this is why it is confusing, he seems to be saying that what this says is that the right to be an owner is not absolute, which distorts the meaning that John Paul II put on that. Because from the very beginning, the church has made a clear distinction between access and use, and Pope Francis here appears to be confusing them and applying what is applicable only to use to access. This is very confusing to me. Now, and frankly, a friend of mine, Father Matthew Habiger, who used to be the head of Human Life International, his doctoral thesis was Papal Teachings on Private Property, 1891 to 1981, which is when Labar Magsuchens came out. <clears throat> and every chapter in that book goes to great length to explain the difference between access and use, and that papal teaching 
has not nullified the right to be an owner. It is absolute. It is not negotiable. It cannot be nullified simply for expedience or any other reason. That is why I say, you know, looking at what Pope Francis appears to have said, I am forced to say, no, on the contrary, it, this, you cannot confuse access and use. And this is in uh, the encyclical Preconis, uh, Preconis Evangelii, I think 1951. Uh, yeah, here, I, yeah, 1951. It's the uh, Pius XII, and it's the encyclical on the promotion of Catholic missions. Well, for some reason in this encyclical, Pius XII quoted himself from his Christmas message of 1942. And as I said, I'm sorry to keep giving these extended quotes, but this is a very confusing argument that Pope Francis gives. And all I can do is give the, uh, yeah, the arguments of previous popes and other experts in the field. Said, this is paragraph 52 of Evangelii Preconis, uh, which I just reversed as Preconis Evangelii, anyway. <laughs> My Latin stinks, as you might have guessed, but it's better than my Greek. Uh, paragraph 52 says, apropos of this, you know, his previous discussion, we might cite our words to the College of Cardinals and the bishops at Christmas time, 1942, which, if you recall, was at the height of World War II. National Socialists, the Communists, you know, the Socialists were gaining ground everywhere, as well as the Fascists. The Church has condemned the various forms of Marxist socialism. And she condemns them again today because it is her permanent right and duty to safeguard men from fallacious arguments and subversive influence that jeopardize their eternal salvation. But the church cannot ignore or overlook the fact that the worker, in his efforts to better his lot, is opposed by a machinery which is not only not in accordance with nature, it is at variance with God's plan and with the purpose we have, the purpose he had in creating the goods of the earth. See, now what Pius XII is saying here appears to contradict what Pope Francis said in his encyclical. And he continues, after bleeping over some examples, uh, the dignity of the human person then, speaking generally, requires as a natural foundation of life, in other words, an absolute foundation, the right to the use of the goods of the earth. To this right corresponds the fundamental obligation to grant private ownership of property, if possible, to all. Access. Positive legislation regulating private ownership may change and more or less restrict its use. Generic right of dominion. Excuse me, universal destination of all goods. I just, the universal right of dominion is the right of every single person to be an owner. Uh, but if legislation is to play its part in the pacification of the community, it must see to it that the worker who is or will be the father of a family is not condemned to an economic dependence and servitude which is irreconcilable with his rights as a person. In other words, whatever you do under the universal destination of all goods, which is looking to the, to the good of everybody, by your use of what you own, you cannot define that in any way that nullifies the underlying and absolute right to be an owner in the first place. Yet that is the very thing Pope Francis seems to be saying when he said it is not absolute and that the church has never said it was absolute. Yet here in 1951, 
And in 1942, is Pius XII saying exactly the opposite? Or he appears to be, to me, to be saying exactly the opposite. And then he continues, this is Pius XII in paragraph 53, whether this servitude arises from the exploitation of private capital, in other words, capitalism, or from state absolutism, socialism, the result is the same. Indeed, under the pressure of a state which dominates all and controls the whole field of public and private life, even going into the realm of personal opinions, projects, and beliefs, in other words, Nazi Germany, the loss of liberty is so great that still more serious consequences can follow as experience proves. I mean, the Nazis were redefining everything, as, of course, has become the case with all forms of socialism, redefining private property, redefining marriage and family, redefining organized religion, redefining everything, even life itself. So that this is Leo Thirteenth, And remember, I'm responding to my confusion over Pope Francis seeming to say that the church has never said, here's Leo Thirteenth uh, expanding on this and responding to you know, what seems to be Pope Francis claiming that the right to be an owner is no longer absolute or never was when he says that the church has never said this. But this is precisely what the church appears to have been saying. And this is why I am confused. Here's Leo XIII in paragraph 15 of Rerum Novarum. It is clear that the main tenet of socialism, community of goods, must be utterly rejected since it only injures those whom it would seem meant to benefit, is directly contrary to the natural rights of mankind and would introduce confusion and disorder into the commonweal. Well, it seems to me that Fratelli Tutti is introducing that very confusion because it seems to contradict what Pius XII said, now Leo XIII, when he says, the first and most fundamental principle, therefore, if one would undertake to alleviate the condition of the masses, and this is what Pope Francis cited, he says, people need things. But the first principle is, must be the inviolability of private property, not its destruction, as Pope Francis appears to be saying. You can't discard private property when people are in need, because that is the very thing that is going to help them. He seems to be, Pope Francis seems to be saying in Fratelli Tutti, the exact opposite of what the Catholic Church has previously said. And so don't wonder why I am confused and I'm requesting Pope Francis to clarify this, please. And as uh, Leo XIII continued in paragraph 46, as the whole point of Rerum Novarum, we have seen that this great labor question cannot be solved save by assuming as a principle that private ownership must be held sacred and inviolable. The very thing that Pope Francis said had never been said. The law, therefore, should favor ownership, and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. There's no way to get around that. Now, to go back even further, let's talk about Edward Cardinal Manning when he was in his discussion and that's putting it politely, with the agrarian socialist Henry George and Father McGlynn. You may have heard of him. If you watched the previous videos, yes, you did. Drink. It's a drinking game. Every time you hear it, you have to have a drink. 
Yeah. Well, I could use one at this point. Unfortunately, I don't have anything right here except this rubbing alcohol. And I think that that might cause a little harm. I mean, what, what's the first thing in the Hippocratic Oath? First, do no harm, which, of course, is also the principle of natural law. Good is to be done. Evil is to be avoided. Don't cite something under natural law that is actually evil, such as nullifying or redefining the natural law. That is not consistent with the first principle of the natural law itself. Now, this is Edward Cardinal Manning in an open letter in December 1st, 1886, published in, I think, the Brooklyn Examiner in New York City. The law of property is founded on the law of nature. It is sanctioned in revelation, declared in Christian law, taught by the Catholic Church, and incorporated into the in the civilization of all nations. This appears to contradict what Pope Francis said. And again, this is why I'm confused and I'm requesting clarification. Manning goes on to, uh, in another letter, two weeks later, when Henry George twisted what Cardinal Manning said into an endorsement of socialism. As I said, don't be surprised that so many people consider Catholic social teaching socialist when you have explicit statements like that contradicted and twisted. Mr. George had said the Catholic Church had never confirmed the principle of property and land. This is not true. I mean, here's Cardinal Manning calling Henry George a liar. Exactly the, op the reverse is the fact. The church has from the beginning taught the right of property in land. That's December 14th, 1886 in the Brooklyn Examiner. Now, property in land and property in anything else, there's no distinction between the two. It's both property. You can't say, well, property means one thing when it's this and property means another thing when it's that. No, it's property. The forms may change how you own it, but not the fact that you own it. Now, Pope Francis goes on again to say, the principle of the common use of created goods is the first principle of the whole ethical and social order. That is true so far as it goes. But then he adds something which changes that. Because when you're talking about the social order, you're talking about the universal destination of all goods and the exercise or use of property not access. The social order is the environment within which you exercise property. Therefore, the principle of common use, meaning not common ownership, but that you use your goods in such a way as not to harm yourself, others, or the common good. That's what common use refers to in that, but which now Pope Francis appears to be slightly changing the meaning of to mean common ownership, not common use. He said, it is a natural and inherent right that takes priority over others. Well, no, it doesn't. The universal destination of all goods is subordinate to the generic right of dominion. You cannot nullify the right to be an owner simply by, the by defining the exercise differently. And yet this is the very thing that Pope Francis appears to be saying you can do. He needs to, in my opinion, clarify this and say he is talking only about use, not access. 
because it appears to be confused throughout his whole presentation on private property. He says, all other rights having to do with the goods necessary for the integral fulfillment of persons, including that of private property or any other type of property should, in the words of St. Paul VI, in no way hinder this right, but should actively facilitate its implementation. If you restrict that to use and not to access, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I recognize where this quote from St. Paul VI comes from. It comes from a discussion on use, not access. Yet Pope Francis, the way he put it, made it sound as if it applies both to access and to use. You can't do that. That's illegitimate. You're twisting the meaning of words to apply to something that they don't apply to and confusing two different principles, the generic right of dominion and the universal destination of all goods. Now, this is where Pope Francis makes a very strange statement that desperately calls out for clarification. The right to private property can only be considered a secondary natural right derived from the principle of the universal destination of created goods. But the universal destination of all goods is itself derived from the generic right of dominion. You cannot redefine the generic right of dominion or the right to be an owner by redefining the use by saying that use trumps access. It does not. Pius XII in Evangelii Preconis, or did I get that right? Yeah, Evangelii Preconis clearly stated, you may not define the use of goods in any way that negates or nullifies the underlying right to be an owner. And yet this is what it appears Pope Francis is saying. You can't do that. The Catholic Church cannot change truth. It has never claimed to do so. In fact, it has made that claim the basis of its, of its mission, of, it, of its very existence, that the Catholic Church has never changed the teaching. So, of course, for centuries, people have been trying to say, oh, yes, it has. No, it hasn't. This is another reason why this is so confusing to me. It says, this has concrete consequences that ought to be reflected in the workings of society. Yet it often happens that secondary rights displace primary and overriding rights in practice, making them irrelevant. That statement as it stands is correct, but he has flipped the secondary and the primary rights. He has turned the right of access, you know, the right to private property into a secondary right and use from a secondary right into a primary right. As I said, this is very confusing to me, as it should be to anybody else. There's no such thing as a secondary natural right. It's either a natural right or it isn't. You're either dead or you're alive. You're either pregnant or you're not. You can't be a partial natural right or a secondary natural right. It does not make sense. And I'm confused. So I'm asking for instruction and guidance. Now, he continues, Pope Francis. This is paragraph 122. Development must not aim at the amassing of wealth by a few, but must ensure human rights, personal and social, economic and political, including the rights of nations and of peoples. I agree with that 100%. 
but it may not be the interpretation that other people put on it. I say that what that means is that people may not be prevented from becoming owners or from employing their labor in ways that they can be productive and therefore take care of their own needs through their own efforts. The interpretation that people seem to be putting on this and that may be Pope Francis intended, which is why I'm confused, is that people have a right to the result of other people's production, not their own. But clearly, the whole idea of social justice is to restructure the social order to make it possible for people to take care of themselves through their own efforts, not for them to be taken care of by others, which necessarily implies that they are dependents, that is, permanent children or slaves. No, an adult, a full human being, takes care of himself and his dependents. It's not for others to do. Yes, there are special cases where people should be taken care of, but that's not the normal way of doing things. And here Pope Francis continues, the right of some to free enterprise or market freedom cannot supersede the rights of peoples and the dignity of the poor. Well, the right of some to free enterprise? Everyone has the right to free enterprise. Everyone has the right of access. He's turning that into a limited right, a derived right, and turning the right to, re, you know, the use into the primary right. He's flipping them. Th this is very confusing. How many times am I going to say that? Should we, should we have a contest to see how many times I said confusing? I got a ticker or, going. <laughs> it says, it says, or for that matter, respect for the natural environment. For if we make something our own, it is only to administer it for the good of all. Yes, if you're referring to use, not access. I mean, the church's teaching on the difference between access and use have, prior to this encyclical, been pretty clear, even though a lot of people have deliberately misinterpreted them and messed them up. Now, here in paragraph 123, we're coming up to the end. So you don't have to listen to me too much longer. It says, the right to private property is always accompanied by the primary and prior principle of the subordination of all private property to the universal destination of the earth's goods and thus the right of all to their use. Okay, up to that last phrase, that is absolutely correct. Thus to the right of all to their use? No. That means that there is no such thing as private property. The right, private property means I can exclude from use anybody I choose, except as ameliorated and modified by the universal destination of all goods. I cannot use my goods in other way to harm others. And if I have a superabundance, I am morally obligated to distribute that excess to the poor. And in emergencies, I may even give what I don't need for my own absolute survival and that of my dependents. But that's an emergency. This appears to be making it the ordinary way of doing things that I am permitted no more than I can use myself. And somebody else determines what I need. This, as I said, this completely, you know, uh, overturns what Catholic teaching has been saying for, from the very beginning. Now, <clears throat> paragraph 124. Nowadays, a firm belief in the common destination of the earth's goods. See, 
He never mentions generic right of dominion. It's always the universal destination of all goods, which he seems to combine the two, making what is derived absolute and, and what is absolute into something derived. It says, requires that this principle also be applied to nations, their territories, and their resources. As the bishops of the United States have taught, there are fundamental rights that precede any society because they flow from the dignity granted to each person as created by God. Yes, that is correct. But understand the distinction between access and use. What we have an obligation as individuals, as groups, as nations, is to make it possible for other people to take care of themselves through their own efforts, not to take care of them directly, except in a, an emergency situation, which of course the world is in a complete emergency situation right now and has been for decades. But the goal of Catholic teaching is not that everybody be taken care of, but that it be everyone has the capacity and the ability to take care of themselves. We are not to turn everybody into a slave or a child simply because, oh, that way they'll all be taken care of. No, that's not the point of Catholic teaching, either spiritual or temporal. Our goal is to become fully human, so fully adult, to be with God in heaven, not to be permanent children taken care of for all eternity. Now, this is our conclusion coming up to it. We have to keep in mind at all times what Leo XIII said and understand even what Pope Francis says in light of what the Catholic Church has always taught, which is why I'm asking for clarification, because I'm confused. I says, we have seen that this great labor question cannot be solved, save by assuming as a principle that private ownership must be held sacred and inviolable, even though it seems like in Fratelli Tutti, he keeps saying it's not, but it is. The law, therefore, should favor ownership, and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. And this is the only, only conclusion possible, is that I, and possibly others who may agree with me, respectfully request clarification, as there are apparent contradictions throughout that encyclical, particularly in the area in which I have some expertise, that of private property and Catholic social teaching with respect to private property. It's the only thing I can say, I'm not dissenting, I'm asking for instruction. Please show me how what Fratelli Tutti says is correct or clarify it in a way that I can understand it, please. <laughs> 